Hello and once again, welcome once again to our daily devotional podcast. Today I will talk about hypocrisy and the evils of our faith and our religion. Now this is an issue that is very, very serious to our Lord Jesus Christ and we need to take it seriously because towards the end of this passage that I'll be reading, Jesus calls out some calls out a warning that says, You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? That's a terribly stern warning, a terribly harsh statement. And it's all about hypocrisy and the dangers of hypocrisy. And hence, while this passage is long, we need to take heed of what Jesus says in this passage. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 to 39. Matthew 23, 13-39 Let us pray. Father, soften our hearts, but not only soften our hearts to listen to you, but where you teach us things that are way beyond what we are able to do, then God give us faith to believe that you will transform our lives and make us into people whom you will find great delight in. Help us, Lord, to embrace your word, even when the indictment is strong, even when the word is painful to hear. Cause us, Lord, yet in love, in repentance, to embrace your word to us today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 23, 13-39 Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides, you say. If anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but if anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a net but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then outside also will be clean. 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus had very harsh words for the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the leaders, the teachers of the law, and the Pharisees were the leaders of the institutional institution of Judaism. They were the heads of the institutional religion. And yet, being the head of God's people, they were not inside the kingdom of heaven. One of the great distinctions then that we must always keep in mind that is that just because you are within the institution of God, whether it is Judaism or whether it is Christianity, does not mean that you are inside the kingdom of heaven. The two are very different and sometimes, as in this case, the two are diametrically opposed. That is a tragedy, but that is so often the case and we need to take note of it. That the institution of the religion, whether it is Christianity or Judaism, is often opposed to the kingdom of heaven. And that was the problem with the Pharisees. Jesus' heading, I would call that the heading, was that the Pharisees shut the door of heaven in people's faces. But they, it was because they themselves would not enter, and they would also not let those who wanted to enter, to enter. The other thing was that they would go all out to look for converts to build up the institution. But having done that, they made these converts twice as bad as they were when they were not within the religion. Does that still apply in our day? Do we see this indictment of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees within our church, within our lives? First of all, what was wrong with the Pharisees that they would not enter the kingdom of heaven and they would not allow others to enter the kingdom of heaven? 
some time ago I talked about a judgmental spirit. That's different from making good and bad judgment. But the judgmental spirit is one who constantly looks at the faults of another and refuses to see their own fault. It is as Jesus says, you see the speck on your brother's eye and you fail to see the plank in your eye. Judgmental spirit is what stops us from entering the kingdom of God and then stops others as well. It's a dual, a double-edged sword. First, it stops us from entering the kingdom of heaven. When we continue, continuously look at the faults of others, we fail to see our own faults. And therefore, we fail to see our need to follow Christ, our need to ask God for mercy, our need to ask God to help us and to transform us. And that's one of the ruses that we, that, that this judgmental spirit has. It distracts us. It causes us to keep looking at the faults of others. And in so doing, we fail to see our faults. In fact, that's the purpose, really. We don't want to see our faults. We, it's painful when we see our own faults. And to avoid seeing our faults, we would rather look at someone else's faults. I'm guilty of that all the time. So often, I would rather criticize others, whether it's another church, another pastor, whether it is another way of living. But I would so much rather focus on someone else's fault and talk all about it than to look at my own faults. But the problem is this, that if we are so full of problems and we refuse to submit them to God and to ask God to have mercy on us, to ask God to transform us, then we remain outside of the reign of God. The kingdom of heaven is not something that we do once in a lifetime and forget about it. The kingdom of heaven is something that we enter into, we allow to have over us every day, every moment. It is saying, God, be my king. God, transform my life. God, cleanse me. God, take control of me. It is saying the Holy Spirit, live through me. That's the kingdom of heaven. To walk into that kingdom, to remain in that kingdom, is a daily effort. It's a daily discipline. But when we stop looking at how much we need the grace of God, when we stop looking at how much we need God to guide us, and then we say, wow, that person is so terrible, we fail to enter the kingdom of heaven. We continue to lead our lives in wicked ways, in painful ways, in stressed and agonizing ways, all the while refusing to see that very often we are the ones who need to change. But the other side of a judgmental spirit is that we also stop others from coming in to know God. Whenever we are judgmental to another person, we shut the door to that person finding grace from God. How would a person find grace when our attitude to that person is, you are evil, you are bad, you are condemned, you deserve not, you do not deserve my love, you do not deserve my compassion. When we are constantly picking on someone else's faults, how does that person ever have a chance to come to God? In that sense then, we refuse to enter the kingdom of heaven and we slam the door at their face because no one will come to God through a messenger who is judgmental of them. 
And yet, we go around building our church. We go around raising, increasing our attendance, telling people to come, but we only look at one kind of people, the ones without faults or whom we think have no faults, the ones who can contribute to our church, the ones we believe are assets to us. But if they came in and we taught them the same way that we live, a judgmental people who look at the faults of others, then we have turned people, the converts, into people twice as bad as they ever were. Perhaps we should never have brought them into the church if we were to get them into our way of living. You know, sometimes it's... I once pastored a church where I was so worried about allegiances, affiliations, that I would watch like a hawk at whether the newcomers were being influenced by this party or influenced by that party. Each one was simply building up their own party, building up their own friends and allegiances at the expense of the other. Perhaps then it would have been better if none of them had come to our church. Because what we have done is to draw them to be antagonistic and hostile to others. And that is a disaster. But this was what Pharisees were doing. And this continues very often to be what Christians are doing. But these were the faults of the Pharisees. First, that they had a very warped sense of value. In verse 16, Jesus says, You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. And then the same about the altar and the offering on the altar. What the Pharisees and teachers of the law had done was to look at the things, the instruments, the gold and the valuable things in the temple and say that these were more valuable and therefore if you swear by them, if you swear by your offering, if you swear by the golden vessels in the temple, then they are of greater value than the temple itself or than the altar itself. They had a very warped sense of value. And so have, I, have we. I remember long ago learning, hearing this very heartwarming story about a little girl who was playing. And while she was playing, she accidentally knocked down her mother's very expensive favourite vase. She looked in horror at the broken pieces on the floor and was inconsolable. The mother, hearing the crash, rushed out just to see her very precious vase broken into a hundred pieces. She ran up to the girl, hugged her and said, I'm so glad you're not hurt. Of course, later she would have to teach the girl not to do things like that. But she taught the girl a great value. She taught the girl that she was infinitely more important than this vase that was precious to the mother that lay broken on the floor. It was a powerful lesson. But it's also a lesson that we need to learn about values. But what is more valuable? Have we as men had this experience of our wives calling us and say, dear, I just smashed the car. The first question is, how bad was the damage to the car? 
We may laugh at this, but where are our values? Perhaps this heartwarming story about this girl is just the simplest of the examples because I think I would have done the same. But if the story were different, if the person who needed something from me was a dirty person, a homeless person, someone who looked different, who was not as good or as lovable as my child, would I have done the same? A friend of mine told me about his great struggle when one day while he was on holiday, he saw a homeless man shivering badly in the cold. The Holy Spirit told him, give him your coat. But this man's coat was so expensive, it was one of those really luxurious items that he had bought. The Holy Spirit was saying to him, take off this coat and wrap the man up with your coat. After a huge struggle with his own well, his own sense of wanting to keep his wanting to keep the coat, he finally surrendered the coat to the man. He learned that the temple of God, each temple of God, was more valuable than the coat that he used to wrap it in. I don't know. I'm not sure I would have done the same. But there are so many instances in our lives when the things that we hold dear are far more valuable in our eyes than the people, than the temples of the Holy Spirit, the people of God who need these things. I struggle very badly with this issue. As I said, if it were my daughter, I would say yes. If it were my wife, I would willingly do it. But if it were a stranger, if it were someone who needed something precious from me, valuable in my eyes, but who was more remote, and then would I consider that person of great value? Or would I value my things as far greater than them? It is a prayer that I ask God to change my heart, and I believe for many of you as well. Do we Have we gotten a very warped sense of value? second issue that they had was that they had a very warped sense of proportion, of sense of what was important to God. In verse 23, God said, You obey the word of God, the law to the T. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Basically, you are so ridiculously strict and meticulous about what you give to God. Not only do you give your crops, not only do you give your money, you give even your spices, tiny little things, mint, dill, and cumin. was meant to be sarcasm, I suppose, um, sense of irony. And yet you neglect the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. The Pharisees had gotten all the values and the principles mixed up. To them, obedience to the T, obedience of the law to the T, was far more important than the matters, the things that really mattered to God, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, what is justice, mercy, and faithfulness? Just a few words about this. Justice is about giving to people what is their right. You know, so often we 
we end up fighting for our own rights. And when people say, hey, why are you fighting so hard? You say, I have a great sense of justice. Let me assure you that it's not a great sense of justice. That's simply a great sense of entitlement. A real sense of justice is not when you fight for your own rights. A real sense of justice is when you seek to give the rights to others at your own expense. A real sense of justice is when you fight fiercely for the rights of others at your own expense. Where you are willing, where I am willing to give of what I have taken unjustly and give it to someone who deserves it justly. It is that sense of indignation that I should gain from someone's misery, that I should benefit from the injustice done from someone else to someone else, and saying, I want to write that also. Now, that's a very difficult thing indeed. It's easy to fight for our rights. It's so much harder to fight for the rights of others at our own expense. But that's the justice that God is talking about. To care deeply that those who have been oppressed, that those who have been denied their rights, be given their rights, even when it means surrendering some of our privileges and some of the things that we have been given at the expense of those who have been denied their rights. That's justice. Now, mercy is, goes even further. It is giving to people who don't deserve it something, a favour, a blessing. The first is giving to people who deserve something, and it is their right, and that's justice, giving it to them. But even when they don't, we give them what we want to do, to give as a blessing to them. That's mercy. I told you a story uh, two months ago about my friend who found his mate stealing his things. Instead of dismissing her and sending her home right away, he made a deal with her that if she would stop stealing from him, he would support her family back home and pay for the medical expenses. He even paid for the house that was destroyed by a hurricane. Now that is mercy. Refusing to just summarily give, meet out justice against an offender, but instead looking at what their needs were and caring for them. And then faithfulness. Faithfulness often is in short supply as well. Faithfulness is when we, we keep our commitments. And of course, the first example, the prime example of faithfulness is marital faithfulness. That's when we have promised our spouses to love and cherish them for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. We keep that promise throughout our lives. That is an example of faithfulness. But faithfulness also has to do with faithfulness to our friends, faithfulness to the people that you have been committed to. Years ago, during a recession, that was like 30 years ago, there was a huge recession. And the friend, and we had just gotten out of the recession, and the friend shared this with me, that after the recession, he had many job offers, but he refused any of the job offers because during the recession, the boss took out from his personal savings money to pay each of his staff. Rather than remove, dismissing his staff, rather than cutting the salaries, he sacrificed 
whatever little he had, whatever else he had to support his staff. And he said, how do we find a man, such a faithful employer? Why would I ever leave him? But that's faithfulness. That's sticking to our commitments even when it hurts us because we have made a commitment to them. And so God, Jesus was saying that these three qualities, justice, mercy and faithfulness, are the most important matters of the law and to God. But think of it, how often do we value these three qualities, these three matters? Let's think of how we choose our pastors, for example. When we choose our pastors, we think of, well, of good moral standing, right? No scandals, don't drink, perhaps. Uh, we think of their quality, our abilities, our ability to preach, our ability to do various things. But hardly do we look at a person and ask, how committed to justice is this person, to faithfulness, to mercy? Do we see examples, do we see evidence of justice, mercy and faithfulness in the candidates that we choose as pastors? Well, not pastors then, church leaders. How do we choose our church leaders? It's about the same, no scandal, scandal free. Um, that's top on the list and then abilities second on the list. But hardly ever does justice, mercy and faithfulness feature in our selection of church leaders as well. So what is the result of our ignoring these three qualities? We have a church that is ostensibly in, well, apparently very upright. Although these days we discover that we are not either. We, we have a lot of skeletons in our closets. But that's a different matter. What we do have, like what the Pharisees had, what Judaism had, were Pharisees who were upright. They were very upright and they were very competent. But none of them had justice, mercy and faithfulness. And so we built our churches full of talent, full of growth, full of uprightness, moral superiority. But what we lack then are people, are Christians who would give of ourselves that justice may be done for others. Would give for ourselves, give of ourselves that mercy may be given to others. Who would keep our commitments even when at our own expense. I don't say this to judge our churches. Because when I look at my own life and what I am, would I have qualified to lead a church? Would any of us have qualified to lead a church when each, when none of us was selected because we had a strong sense of justice, strong sense of mercy and an unfailing faithfulness to those we have committed to? The next issue then is that of respectability. The two parts to this, and they are about the same. Verse 25, Jesus says, You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. And then in verse 27, he says, You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. 
This is respectability. Respectability may be the biggest curse to goodness. Respectability may be the biggest curse to the Christian faith. Christian Christianity has become a very respectable religion. But do you know why it is such a curse to Christianity, true Christianity? It is such a curse because the opposite of respectability is shame. The expense we the price of respectability is shame. In order to keep our respectability to look good, to look like whitewashed sepulchres, we shame others who are unable to look like us. We shame others to the extent that they too have to look like us, whitewashed and clean on the outside, and inside all the dirt which we cannot acknowledge because respectability does not allow us to acknowledge, to confess, or to repent. While I was serving in, as the ch chaplain in prison, we had this scheme, it's called the Angel Tree Project. And I'm hoping to introduce that back to our church. It is to bring um, goodies and provisions uh, at Christmas to the families of prisoners. And we saw a very great difference between the families of Christians and the families of non-Christians. Often when we went to the families of non-Christians, they would welcome us so warmly and say, thank you so much, we're so grateful. Now could you send our love back to our son in prison? They wanted to know more about their sons, whether we knew them or not. They wanted to hear news of them and they wanted to tell us about their sons and how they missed their sons. And then they wanted us to send their love to their sons. But several times, in fact many times, when we visited Christian homes, they would shut the door on us and tell us not to come back because they would lose face before the neighbours. They didn't want the neighbours to see our van, the prison fellowship van, or they didn't want to see, to hear that we were from representing their sons in prison. There was so much guilt so much shame, not guilt, so much shame among Christians that it was just heartbreaking. Imagine being a son, a child living in a Christian home. How terrifying it was that when we have transgressed, there is shame and there is no mercy. I, I experienced the same thing among homosexuals as well. That so many non-Christians would embrace the child. Okay, so you are homosexual, I'm sad about this, but hey, I love you as much. But when it comes to Christians, there is so much shame in it that their children are ostracized, their children feel the weight of condemnation, not just of their family members, but of society, of the entire church. And the weight of shame is hard to bear. What have we become? What sort of monsters have we become when we value respectability above kindness, mercy, justice and faithfulness? What have we become when we value our things more than we value people? What have we become when we when we have overturned all our laws such that we are meticulous about certain moral laws and we ignore the important ones of God. Jesus did not downplay 
the pain that he feels when he cries out, how will you escape being condemned to hell? It's a very serious statement indeed. Because if the church, like the, like the temple, has turned, overturned all its values, in the process refused to come into the kingdom of heaven and refused to allow others to come into the kingdom of heaven, then there is a huge reckoning for us. At the end of it, Jesus says, How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. You see, Jesus does not say all these things to shame us. Jesus does not say all these things to condemn us. The very heart of what Jesus is saying is out of love for us. He longs to bring us back into his shelter, into his wings to protect us. But first of all, we must see our sin and we must repent. And then we must have the hope that God will transform our lives. I look at this list and I know how overturned, how upside down my values are. And my prayer for myself and my prayer for each of you who listen is that we will all turn to God in repentance. And then... We will hold on to the Holy Spirit and say, lead us and transform us. Let us pray. Father, you make a very, very hard indictment on us. But it is all too true of us. It is so true of us because indeed we have valued respectability above mercy, above love. We have valued moral uprightness above justice, mercy and faithfulness. We have overturned your laws. We have overturned your values. We have valued things more than people. And we put very little value on people these days. Father, look upon us with mercy because God indeed we have become a monstrosity so often within our churches within our own lives we have become a monstrosity and God you call us you call us to yourself that you may hide us under your wings and God we want to run under your wings we want your spirit to start to change our hearts, to change our values, to do the impossible, because so often we have been so ingrained in these values, in these inverted values. Thank God we don't even know how to start, how to change. But God, come and transform our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening and have a blessed day. See you on Sunday. I really look forward to seeing all of you on Sunday as we come together to take the Lord's Supper together. It's a reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. And this is so important because it reminds us that even when the task ahead, the change ahead of us is so daunting, 
God can transform us because He now lives in us and He has washed us with His blood. See you on Sunday then. Goodbye.